Blog Talk Radio. books A Moment in the Sun and Live from the Cafe. Intoxication Nation is the latest from Guy Graybill, a teacher, author, poet, and photographer. Graybill is also the author of several books. This one takes an incisive look at alcohol, its history, and its effects on society, many of which don't look too good when coming from Graybill's pen. Guy Graybill, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, to begin with, let's uh, start with what prompted you to write this uh, rather lengthy work. Now, we talked uh, before the show, and that you had previously released this book under the title Impugned, and uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, how we came to the new title and what this book is about. Well, as an author, I hate to admit, but the the title Impugned was worthless. Nobody liked it. I was the only one that liked it, and I decided I had to give it up if we could. And I asked the publisher, can we change the title? Because he said even in bookstores, or people don't even look at it with that title. Mm-hmm. And I, and he said, we can change it. We'll have to go to the Library of Congress and get another number, but we can change it. And uh, he was willing to do that. We had three. I gave him three titles that I thought might be nice, and he liked Intoxication Nation, and uh, so does everybody else that I've talked to about a title. So I am pleased that we changed that and that the publisher was willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, again, what prompted you to write this um, this particular work? Well, I've been keeping a file on alcohol problems in the country for oh, probably 10 years. It was a, a mm-hmm. pretty lengthy file. And uh, that's... When I decided to try to organize it into a book, uh, there are several things that I looked at, and primarily the idea that the the Constitution is not being regarded anymore in this field. And in fact, it never has been in the part that I'll mention later in the program when we talk about, Mm -hmm. I say there are three parts of the Constitution that apply to the alcohol uh, sales in the United States. Two of them are now obsolete because uh, one did away with the other one. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm taken with the history lesson that was in this, and um, I can give you a couple of pinpoints a little later on here, but in terms of alcohol, uh, it's been a part of human history for centuries, and the use and abuse has been batted about. What is your hope that the book's going to stimulate? What I would like to see is just a rational approach to alcohol so that we have, we recognize that there are exemplary drinkers. And we also, we don't have to recognize, it's thrust at us all the time, that there are problem drinkers. Mm -hmm. And that's what I would like the government 
and uh, the uh, the media in particular, those two to and the schools, the education system, to take a harder look at problem solving in the area of uh, alcohol abuse. Mm-hmm. Now I need to ask this: Is there? I have my own personal view on it in a couple of different angles, one of which I think you'll recognize. Is there a personal reason or reasons behind your views, or is it from over the time of your life? It's over the time of my life. I've met many people who had real problems in their lives, and Mm -hmm. uh, I did not have that. I did not have a drunken father. I think there was some drinking further back in the relation. But it wasn't any that directly affected me. I didn't suffer from anything like that. I just see it as a problem around me, and I've met too many people who did suffer, and some of them are Mm -hmm. still suffering. And we'll mention somewhere along the way here a man from near Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania, who suffered from before he was born until he died because he had a drunken father. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because um, this is something that I, I don't know if this is something to do with psychology or history or what, but I'd heard of this many years ago. And now I grew up in a family in Vermont that um, for no particular reason, as far as I know, my father, who would have had he lived be only a little bit younger than you, I think nothing personal, that <laughs> um, right. did not. No, dad didn't want alcohol in the house. He just, he did not drink himself. Um, He just, it just was a thing that he was not interested in. Uh, It was not from religious reasons. And I do not believe that it was from family reasons, but that was just how it was. And that was that. Um, Out of respect, I will not mention a family member who did deal with alcohol issues and while I wasn't really completely aware of everything there was enough there for me to know uh, what was going on and think okay this is this is not something you want to be this is something to avoid and so I guess it was a it was an indirect object lesson but it was one that also bothered me for a part of my life because this person was it was and still is someone that I care very much about and I thought hmm you know it's it's like that and yes in my own life, same thing. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, because in the family we didn't have it, it became something that perhaps was wanted. Or, as you say, people who have had alcoholism in their families very direct, it seems to trigger that way too. And I'm just wondering, if there is, is there anything in psychological record that you've come across where there's a shift or, or maybe a lean toward that? I am not aware of that. I know... The book has uh, an introduction that was written by a man who does deal with alcohol uh, or with uh, habitual problems of that type. And uh, he mm-hmm. he seems to have hit on that something close to what you're saying, I believe. And the, the whole idea of the psychological, there is a major psychological aspect to it apparently, and the idea that if... If there has been a problem in the family, the uh, I think they always say that there's a the tendency is that it could continue, and uh, mm-hmm. that's what we hope to happen. And apparently, in your case, you were also blessed with a although you have a problem with an, uh, a relative, you're also blessed with a parent who I think uh, had the, the 
right atmosphere in your home. Well, I think both of my parents did. I think both of my parents grew up before they before they met were very much like that, and it just seems that way. And so I guess I was. We all were. And for the record, this relative is okay. Um, long time uh-huh. ago, this person put an end to it, and everything's good. And I'm I'm thankful for that. We all are. And uh, but yeah, it, and it and it's it's a success story. It says yes, you can you can change from this. That's something I think as we go along, we're going to be talking more about. Um, in terms of history. Now, you go right back to the beginning of it, even with your cover, Thomas Nast's famous uh, cover, uh, the political cartoon or whatever that was, is one thing. Yes. Whiskey, in particular, seems to have a, had a place at the table for quite a while. Well, it certainly did. And uh, Nast, I was pleased that we had a, a top cartoonist in the nation who was uh, had problems with alcohol. That is, uh, he faced those problems in his cartoons and addressed them. And uh, I think that cartoon in particular is a classic, and I thought it was nice to have in the book. And uh, as happened before, my publisher thought that also would be nice on the cover, and he put that on the cover. Yeah. Well, it's and it's certainly eye-catching for anybody with a sense of history, or even if not, um, just uh, the work of NAST, the... the um, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not an artist myself, but I look at the. If you look closely at it, you look at the shading, you look at the emotion, you look at the the harder strokes that an artist uses, and you see all of it there. Yes, I I I like it as artwork. I I admire it uh, the way it's just a pen and ink kind of thing, and he has all the strokes there, and he has the emotion of the people. The different people there. The apparently the drunken father in that cartoon uh, doesn't mm-hmm. uh, leave his cup to look at his children that are at the door and his wife who is sort of behind the door. And uh, you'll notice the the main figure in the cartoon is the bartender. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be the the great focus of it is that um, an alcoholic thinks only of this. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of um, the history, I just remember being very surprised. I was about 12 years old, and I read in a book about Abraham Lincoln's assassination in the, the setting of – it was like the setting of Washington post-Civil War. A small item that came up was whiskey was on the breakfast menu at Washington hotels. I mean, and for a reasonable price, you could get a good meal plus the drink, and I was – kind of shocked. I thought, oh, really? And I knew nothing about it, and I, I wondered when that became a standard practice. <laughs> I don't know. It certainly uh, has grown, the whole idea of the... Uh, I normally think of the the casinos and the free liquor mm-hmm. that is given in some of the casinos, and I don't understand why this is an essential thing, but it seems to be for the casinos to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it was one way to uh, to stimulate the gamblers, I guess, to keep them spending their money. Is you know, is perhaps with their reason went the money. You're right. <laughs> I, the more <laughs> if we if we can get them to imbibe a little bit, I think they will be less concerned about uh, whether there's anything in their wallet when they leave the casino. Exactly. 
Well, there's another thing, too. Now, we talked about uh, the money was the main thing. You talked about the industry earlier. There was certainly plenty of money to be made off of off of alcohol, off the sale and the uh, the movement thereof. Um, and and this was a huge industry for a long time. Um, did you see anything? Did you see anything in particular that maybe reflect in the past that maybe reflect that we're still seeing today in terms of its promotion or whatever? I think this, the central thing is, is what it was. A promotion mm-hmm. by advertising, promotion by uh, encouraging, doing various things that encourage it. And one of my main problems that I list in the book is the proliferation. It's been growing and growing and growing. And uh, there was a time when you didn't see women in bar rooms. They simply weren't there. They weren't present. Mm-hmm. And that, and one evidence of that was the trough that they put in front of the bar. If you are, are aware of that, there was always a trough in front of the bar so that the men uh, could, uh, if they overloaded on the liquor, they they didn't have to leave the bar before they uh, could have their next drink. Ah, I did not so know you that. Understand, you understand what we're talking about. My first example that, of that was the old uh, the old bathrooms at Fenway Park, but I seen I know I, I never knew that. Yes, they had the same thing in the bar room as you you would have seen in Fenway Park. Although that they must have got rid of that sometime more recently. Oh, I they guess, have for the, in the ballpark. <laughs> yeah, they got rid of that some years ago. <laughs> yes, well, I remember that in the uh, in the church toilet. Oh, really? And I lived, I went to a rural church. And maybe you did in in Vermont. I don't know, but they had those. I was fascinated by the uh, by the troughs that were in the uh, men's toilet, and they. I didn't realize at that time. And there's. I understand there's still a few of those around. I think there's one out in Western Pennsylvania, in at least one, maybe more. But I've I've read about one that's out in the Western Pennsylvania area. But uh, mm-hmm. that's just one tiny aspect of the uh, the alcohol thing. Mm-hmm. Now, there's one thing that I first read about. I read about it in the Adventures of Thomas Sawyer when I was a boy. And you talk you touch about the temperance movement and its many versions thereof. Um, the roots that Mark Twain spoke of were probably mid 19th century, but may have gone back before that. And that was a pretty strong movement in the United States right up to the time of Prohibition and maybe even after that. Well, prohibition had the tendency to kick everything in the groin, and it knocked um, uh, the the inner, it knocked the air out of the whole temperance movement, and mm-hmm. which is sad to me to see that it didn't at least linger. It just sort of took everything out of it, and uh, the idea that yeah. yes, well, back in, in on, Mark Twain's on. day, it was it was a very active and robust movement, the entire temperance movement, the idea that we would get the nation to stop drinking. And I think the mistake was that we thought it could be done entirely and uh, rather than than uh, minimizing it. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, where it fell apart. So uh, the idea that you saw it in Mark Twain and, and you see it, if you see Western movies, there's often mm-hmm. a temperance thing in the Western movies. 
I remember a uh, Clint Eastwood movie where uh, it might have been Hang 'Em High or something, but it was there was a man at the on a scaffold, and they he wanted to make a small speech, and he made a little temperance speech before the hanging. I can't remember which one that was. I'm not sure either. I remember the scene, but I don't remember uh, the title of the movie for sure. Neither do I. I'm sure uh, a listener will definitely know that. But um, And that's interesting, too, because uh, there were a number of figures in that movement. Um, uh, Tom Sawyer, in fact, in the storyline for a very brief period, was a member of a, of a cadet movement in his hometown, but he left it fairly quickly. And um, the movement um, was uh, – so it was something that obviously had, had resonated with Twain. But there's other folks who were a part mm-hmm. of it. You bring up uh, a familiar figure that I knew through political cartoons as a child. was a lady named Carrie Nation who was from uh, Kansas, I believe. She lived in Kansas. I was at her home in Medicine Lodge, Kansas. And I have a picture mm-hmm. of it. I think there's a picture of it in a book that I, that I had taken myself. But uh, she lived in Kansas. She came out of Kentucky, and her name was Carrie Moore, M-O-O-R-E. And mm-hmm. she, her first husband turned out to be an alcoholic, and his name was Gloyd, G-L-O-Y-D. So she left him. She took her little child that they had had and went back to her home in Kentucky, I guess, her family, because he was had a drinking problem. And then later she married a man named... I think David Nation, and that was ideal for her because her first name was already Carrie, so she simply changed the I-E to a Y, and her middle initial was an A, so she now is Carrie a Nation, and that mm-hmm. fit her her whole uh, persona here, her whole urge to to uh, carry the nation to temperance, and uh, so that, I thought that was interesting that she had a name that lent itself so well, and she saw the the potential there, the possibility for that name. And this was the woman who was known to bust up bars and uh, with an axe or with uh, with whatever was at hand, I suppose. And there's some quite there's quite some fanciful stories. I don't know how many of them are true. I've read some of them. And I would um, imagine virtually her, everything there is why true. Why did she feel the need to use that sort of aggression? Well, I. Th- I compare her to Rosa Parks and to uh, the various people like, uh, like uh, uh, see, Martin Luther King, people who were willing to break the law in order to make a point, even if they're going to suffer from it. And in that mm-hmm. sense, she was like those people. And there, there have been various other ones in, in other countries and so on that would be similar to her. In in her approach, and another one was the the woman um, uh, Mother Jones, whose real name was mm-hmm. Harris, and uh, she mm-hmm. went out and broke the law. They had police waiting for her when she came into a town. They tried to arrest her as soon as she got there before she had a chance to talk to the miners, because she spoke for the miners, and this was not a a uh, big husky woman that might be the one you'd expect to see in a minefield. She was a small woman. Uh, she mm-hmm. diminutive, I think you say. She uh, she went to jail a number of times, but Carrie Nation did the same thing for alcohol. 
The other woman we're talking about, Mary Harris, was working with getting miners some privileges and some some decent treatment from the mine owners. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Carrie Nation took a hatchet, and she actually did go out with a Bible and a hatchet, and she went into saloons, and she smashed saloons, and she went to jail sometimes, but sometimes she didn't because she went into a saloon on a Sunday and smashed it. Uh, they weren't supposed to be open on a Sunday anyway. So she uh-huh. had the law on her side in that sense. But she did go to jail, and then, as you may know, she sold those little, I don't know if they're a pewter or just what, little tiny hatchets, uh, like an inch and a half or so in length, she sold those mm-hmm. to get money to help pay for her, <clears throat> for her legal fees. Mm-hmm. And it's very uh, interesting now that, that we think of these people, and we think of them mm-hmm. as so far back in our past, and yet they still resonate today. Oh, yes. Carrie Nation clearly does. She resonates very much today, I think. And as I say, I mm-hmm. compare her with certain other people who protested against laws that they couldn't change or situations that they they couldn't change legally and she she did work on that so i have a certain admiration for her but she is normally there are several pictures of her exist and the one that you see most often shows her looking like uh like a battle axe that's what i would say Mm -hmm. she looks like uh because she's staring down at you she's wearing a black outfit She's carrying the Bible in one hand, and she has the upraised hatchet in the other. Now, I found softer um, pictures of her, and one or two of those are in the book that show um, a little more matronly, matronly look on the part of Carrie Nation. And that was probably had, the license of political cartoonists, because the one mm-hmm. that I remember most myself, uh, the very first one I remember was really uh, – was sort of a woman with a very man-like, very masculine face. And mm-hmm. I think they sort of misproportioned her, and, and she didn't look right. She didn't look, you know, like, like a it, – it was almost like she didn't really look like a person. And I was like, oh, this is – it was amusing. But then as I later read about her, I thought, well, this is – I'm wondering is, you know, what kind of a woman she really was. But uh, it's, she certainly held her own in history and in, and in the situation she put herself in. Yes, you're right. She did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move this uh, forward here. My um, guest today on the Brown Posey Press Show is Guy Graybill, who is the author of the book Intoxication Nation. Um, in terms of alcohol and its uh, its effects, positive, negative, and otherwise, well, we we talked a little bit about the depictions. We talked about glamorization, and also we talked about the history. Um, there's one thing that's interesting as well is in entertainment, in the films and that sort of thing, we have had – I don't see it as much anymore, but I do recall uh, growing up, and I know that um, in earlier decades, you saw drinking as well as smoking as glamorized as the kind of thing that was like a cool thing to do or the manly thing to do. And also, I've read about in, in you know people of status this is what you did. It was sort of like almost an expected thing. I agree. That's That was in the films, uh, some of the 1930s and 40s films in particular, uh, 
they often you often see the main character holding a drink and uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, the smoking end of it too. Some of that has been reduced somewhat, and maybe maybe because a few of the people in Hollywood themselves suffered from alcoholism, and William Holden is the one that comes to mind. But I think you can name a half dozen who are who get in the news every now and then, or have been in the news in their lifetimes. William Holden apparently died from while he was uh, intoxicated and fell and yes, he died in a he died in a fall at his home. Yes, and, um, and he was alone. It, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, and maybe that was what happened. And you think of. The many there, there's there were so many that did and actually I'll tell you about this one. Um, uh, you will remember Sid Caesar and oh, yes. um, as an actor and a comedian and he changed the game for live television with his programs in the 1950s and um, I read a book of his because he had a long uh, drug and alcohol addiction. He often talked about in his his autobiography Where Have I Been. This was a book that was important to me, not for his stories about his drug and alcohol use, but for something more personal that he did to help save himself. But he had talked about it like this. Now, he grew up in New York, and he talked about how back in his day, successful men were, like I say, expected or seemed to do certain things. For example, a successful man didn't smoke cigarettes. He smoked cigars. And... He's, you know, and when he drank, he didn't just drink beer. He drank top shelf booze, that sort of thing. And and Sid admitted that he never really liked the taste of alcohol, but for some reason he did it. And it wasn't until later years and through a very dark period of his life that he was able to figure out what some of the roots of that was. That is something right there. Is is the st- again the status thing it, that this is what you're expected to do back in those days. That's. He's a good example of that, and uh, I do remember him very well. I remember him in a, uh, one of the, my favorite movies was something called "It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World," and oh, yes. uh, that had a that was loaded with top stars of the day, and he was one of them, struggling to get out of the basement of a a uh, hardware store where he had gone in yes. to grab some tools. So yes, that, that I remember that. From- Yes, and if I remember right, he talked about that in the book very briefly. He he said it was just a bit part, and he said, I could have made that even better. He said that that was a bit part that I could have could have made that even better, if I remember correctly. He said that it was a very – he really enjoyed – he enjoyed working with his friends. He enjoyed the movie, and he had a lot of fun, but he said, I just feel like I went on I – think I think he said something about going on instinct. And he said that he went on his comedic instincts and his experience, but he said, I think I could have done better. So I think that's some, that was really telling. Yes, that is. And, again, I I suggest anybody who likes the old slapstick-type movies to uh, to look at that one because of the, all the talent that was in there, Spencer Tracy mm-hmm. and uh, about a dozen other top stars and a few other ones that we know. Yeah, and I remember watching that as a kid, and with my parent, with my mom, and just absolutely laughing my head off because it was hilarious. <laughs> You're right. I've seen it since then. <laughs> since it first came out, yeah. I I think it's one of the two or three movies that I uh, 
actually bought to have a copy of it. Uh, there are and it's interesting, too, because, yeah. Yeah, and the thing with Sid was that was during his, what he called his dark period. And there was another film a couple of years later that he did called The Busy Body. It's not as well known. Robert Ryan was in it with him. And I only watched a bit of it because it really, I hate to say it, it really wasn't that good. And uh-huh. Sid looked, he, he, he had explained in the book that the movie really wasn't very good. We got hammered by the critics, but he kind of got off a little bit because a, a, a very prominent critic kind of said, well, they've wasted his talent again. And I watched a little bit of it, and I watched some of the routine that he was doing, and it was obviously a routine that he'd used before. And I remember just thinking, what is he doing? And he admitted that it just wasn't part of it. And he said he took the blame for a lot of it because he said, I was in a place, you know, again, he was in a place where his drug and alcohol addiction had really robbed him of his actual talent. And he said, I was, he often said that he was like a boxer, you know, you know, he was like a boxer going on instinct, winning a few of his fights, fighting more on what he could remember, not what he was really capable of doing. And I think that shows, that's something we talk about here in some of the notes you have about health issues. It's like, we can function, but do we? Right. I, I devoted, I think, one chapter, chapter eight, to health. And yes. I mentioned there, well, I'm disturbed when I see this little phrase that they keep using. It says, a little wine is good for the heart. And hmm. they say it as though that takes care of the whole issue of health and the human body. And mm-hmm. they don't mention and I've gone in the book there, I've looked at different experts in the field. I'm talking about uh, people from Mayo Clinic and those places, and they, yes. there's not a single part of the body, the skeletal part, the muscular, the circulatory, the digestive, even the skin, the integumentary part, nervous, endocrine, reproductive, all of them, and they, every one of them is said to be adversely affected by excessive mm-hmm. alcohol, not a drink, mm-hmm. but excessive alcohol, every single part of the body. Mm-hmm. And that should be kept in mind when people are sitting in a bar somewhere. Mm-hmm. And this leads us up to something. I first heard this mentioned, well, I didn't first hear it, but um, as early as the early 1970s, alcoholism in some circles was finally starting to be viewed as an illness. And I didn't, and I remember hearing about this at least 20 years ago, but further back, it was already starting to look at it. And I'm wondering, now I see that as a step forward in treatment, but also prevention. Um, is the view of alcoholism one of the things that maybe has held back the treatment or the change? I would think, well, the popularity of it. The popularity mm-hmm. has never diminished, and uh it's growing, and as I complain throughout the book, I guess, it's growing in popularity, uh, the use of it. Now, if, I don't mind seeing that if they can get some grip on the on the abuse of it that is taking place. Mm-hmm. Now, this brings up a question of, uh, you make a point that our current opioid problem 
could be more manageable. If we took a similar tack with alcohol, could you explain that? Well, partly what I am saying is if we had the alcohol problem under control, that we didn't have Mm -hmm. 10,000 people killed by drunken drivers every year, or that we didn't have several hundred billion, about 200 and some billion in costs from the alcohol problem every year that costs the public that one way or another. And if we didn't have those, then all those resources, if we had got this under control back in the 30s and 20s when we should have, then all those resources would be available today to fight the other problem instead of trying to share with several different major problems when this one should have been solved uh, decades ago, in my opinion. Mm. Well, says it is not. We have to look at, um, it seems like now we've got to really look at a more modern, perhaps a modern approach. I do think that some of it, though, now um, we're taking different approaches to it. And, and also, <clears throat> excuse me, um, we also have more, I think we have more resources in different areas and we have more different ways of looking at it. Um, a lot of it still seems to go back to a central question for each person of why why do you drink in the first place? And that's something that uh, I know folks who've, who have struggled with alcohol. That question is sometimes very hard to answer. It's different in each person. I, I do agree with that. And uh, I, I don't know uh, how we can address that without a strong political... I, I think we need the political end of this resolved. I think we need it to, to be approached as an educational thing, which it isn't really being addressed. It was addressed more back in the 30s and 40s as an educational thing than it is today, and that doesn't make any sense. We should we have the resources to, to address it properly today, and I don't think we are. Well, I certainly remember in the 70s uh, when I grew up, During my adolescence, I remember very much um, the efforts that were made to especially talk about alcohol. Drugs at the time were understood, but not – we didn't hear it quite as much. And I do remember the talks that people would give us as students about their own alcohol and drug issues and and what happened to them and why it happened to them. And uh, I remember certain films specifically that were being pointed to us as, look, this is, this is what can happen to you. You need to think about this. And I'm not sure that it was completely brought home to us in the way that it needed to be. I think I felt like for me as I looked back on it uh, when I became old enough to drink or, well, not really, but sort of, when, when, you know, as we all, you know, we've all been through it when we were young, um, we started to think that, well, the message didn't really get across. And it's like, you can't just, you can't be completely abrasive about it to each person, but you can't be, it's like trying to find the middle ground of how do you touch each person and say to them, look, there's an issue. That, I don't know, I don't know how to answer that one. I agree. that It's difficult to, to address it. And I'm still saying we need to make improvements in that. Uh, I I saw the same thing, uh, whatever, a generation apart from yours, a little earlier, uh, that they they did have, they addressed, 
they told us about alcohol, but there was very little in it that had impact, and I don't think there mm -hmm. is today because there's too much on the other side where it's the glamorization, which is something else I think should be addressed more. The glamorization of alcohol is is pathetic in the way it well, is done and that we see all these celebrities who uh, are involved with the uh, the drinking of alcohol. Well, I don't even have to look at the celebrities. I look at I can I can I think we can all see people right around us who aren't who do the very uh -huh. same things and you look at the and it's the same thing in that. What is interesting is smoking became a focus in the 1990s, but there was so much more empirical evidence about smoking causing cancer and, and what it could do. And that, is, as a parallel, smoking was brought home to me very, very early about how damaging it could be. And I, it seems like was, the boat was missed. Yeah. Smoking was uh, clearly more successful, the addressing of smoking as a health issue. And you saw it disappearing from restaurants and disappearing yep. from public places. And you don't see that. I'm saying we're seeing the reverse. We go into the store, the grocery store, and there's a huge bank of alcohol on one f full side of the store. It's just loaded. And I never saw that as a child uh, or well, even they, 10 years ago. Well, and in Pennsylvania, the liquor laws only this past year or so were updated and they had not been changed since, I think, 1937, if I remembered correctly. So there was a lot of things that were very, you know, the rest of the country kind of moved ahead with that. And, but yeah, it was like, um, yeah, here you could only go to the package stores. You could only go to specific stores. And where I grew up in Vermont, they had blue laws uh, up until probably the late 60s, early 70s, when you could not buy it on a Sunday. And then by then you could. And you mentioned was, package um, stores. That's the only place I ran into a package store yep. for years was in Massachusetts, which is your neighbor. Well, up there. that's what they call them. Yep. Yes. I, well, I lived in Boston for ten years, and package stores or packies, as we used to call them, and we still do. And uh, <laughs> same kind of thing. Um, here we have, and you know, here we have the state liquor stores or whatever they are called. And um, right. I mean, it's uh, so. There's another thing, too, is with changing times, um, you also talk about the political aspect or the political will that is needed. Uh, does this, again, have to do perhaps with that the, the will isn't there perhaps because of money from the lobbying of the liquor industry? Where do you think they, that, that politicians need to get their, get their will back? Well, I, I, there's no doubt in my mind that the amount of money that the – that the alcohol industry puts into the thing is is uh, mm -hmm. tremendous, and uh, we've seen. But you also have those a uh, number of politicians down through the years who have been known for their alcohol. And I don't know if you re mm -hmm. do you remember the Wilbur Mills case, where the congressman who was the head of the Ways and Means Committee that means they considered him to be about as important as the president in Washington. He had yeah. so much control, and so many people came to him, and uh, they would come to him from other parts of the country and say, would you like to make a speech in our part of the country? We'll give you so many thousand dollars to come and make a And because uh, Ways and Means was had control of, of the purse strings, 
And uh, mm-hmm. so we saw Wilbur Mills and the scandal he ran into back in, I think that was in the 60s or 70s, where he mm-hmm. wound up with a, a, a stripper, who was the profession the woman had, and they, they stopped his car one, <clears throat> one night in Washington because they were driving without lights for some mm-hmm. reason. And she ran off into the tidal pool or something to, to try and get away, and it was a ridiculous scandal. He wound up later, still reelected though, still wound up later in Massachusetts or somewhere uh, at, a, uh, at a burlesque hall where she was dancing, and he held a little press conference, apparently under the influence, in her dressing room, which would have been a history-making uh, bit, of, bit of activity there on his part. But then he eventually did lose his uh, job and went on to You're, work for a law firm or something after that. And, and there's, a, there's a long list of it in politics as well. And um, I think the main thing here, though, um, what, my thing in terms of your book, at the, at the end of it here, and in terms of the story that you have told and the tales you have told, where do we go from here? Where do people go from here, do you think? I think if you can get the interest in it in the first place uh, to change the political scene mm-hmm. and and try to choose <laughs> the last opportunity we had to choose somebody who was against alcohol personally would have been Mitt Romney, and he didn't make it. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, he would yeah. yes yeah. go ahead I'm yeah. sorry no go ahead go ahead. Well, his is one of the few we've seen. uh, Of course, my opinion was that when President Bush died the other day, as I mentioned to you, I think, in a note, I think he was the last presidential president we had. I'm sorry, but I don't find any of the ones since then to impress me as being presidential. doesn't matter which party they were in or are in, either one. I don't think they're presidential. And I I think that it's sad that we don't have the kind of leadership that comes from a stable president. But we also had Lyndon Johnson, who was a heavy drinker, and they say they one of his own friends said he thought he died. Uh, he drank himself to death, and mm. that would have been his. And uh, Senator Joe McCarthy, I, you surely remember Senator Joe McCarthy. Oh yes, charming fellow out of Wisconsin. He would cut down every. Pl- political opponent he could and with as viciously as he could and i mean mentioning people al- from, yes go ahead did al- did alcohol fuel part of that anger you think because that certainly yes. seems to be the emotions and anger i believe that the fact that he was alcoholic did tie in with with the anger it made it a lot more effective on his part uh, we had also had the movie that came out a few months ago called Chappaquiddick, which mm-hmm. tells about a senator who also uh, had a drinking problem, and uh, Ed, that Ed was overlooked. Yes, yes, that well, was, and that and was indeed, up in yeah. Chappaquiddick Island. Yes. Yep. Exactly, and uh, that that is still a controversy that continues today because of, of Mary Jo Kopechny's death. And 
Kennedy's drinking problem did follow him, although he did stop in his later years. And um, it, it's one of those, it, there's one of those things that you, that incident is something he never shook, no matter how he did rehabilitate himself and rehabilitate his political career. Right. He could have been a major candidate for president, whether he'd have made it or not is something else. But I think he could have been if he had avoided Chappaquiddick in the first place. But that wouldn't happen exactly. because that was his lifestyle. And exactly. I've been to Larksville, Pennsylvania. I've seen the tomb, the, uh, and they've taken a picture of the tombstone, which also, I believe, appears in the book, because the victim was, it was very sad. And I have mm-hmm. continually said, I would like to know what would have happened if a wealthy person uh, here in Pennsylvania uh, or if a coal cracker here in Pennsylvania had gone to Massachusetts and a male coal cracker and dated a girl in Massachusetts and she drowned in his car, I think there would have been a tremendous upheaval. But uh, because of the way it happened and with to whom it happened, it was different. Uh, he was mm-hmm. one of the elite that we we give a pass to those. And I, I mm-hmm. also think that uh, President Carter was may not have been a successful president, but I trusted him as a president. I thought he was honest and trustworthy right down to the present day. I think he was a a, a good man, whether or not he was capable as a for the leadership uh, with the enemies that surround you in Washington. I think that was right. a major part of his problem. Well, I think that's where we need to move on is, is the leadership and the step forward. Let us see what happens with that. Um, now, I would really like to ask a little bit uh, in the time that we have left about uh, what has led up through your writing career because you have had a varied life. Um, now, tell us very briefly about your background and uh, your growing up. You, uh, you would have been a contemporary of my parents' time, so I, I'm interested to hear, hear it from you. I am pleased that I had the opportunity to grow up in a small town. A small town had a brick plant, and then and that was the focus of the town's uh, employment, although some people traveled uh, 30 or 40 miles to get to a, a factory that, <clears throat> that paid well. Mm-hmm. But my town was a small town, and I, I won't say I grew up in a one-room schoolhouse, I went to a one-room schoolhouse, but I did go to a two-room schoolhouse, and uh, that was virtually okay. the same thing. And as I, the farther I went, the more my interests broadened. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I, I went to Gettysburg College and studied history in Gettysburg College, and I uh, picked up on that, and I've uh, ap- applied that in the classroom. And then things from the classroom are what I still reflect in some of my writing. And the books that I've chosen, mm-hmm. I've, I would go to sales in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania uh, in the days when I could buy a pack of books for 10 cents. The auctioneer right. actually knew me to see me, and he'd say, sold the gray bill, 10 cents. He'd pick up a pile of books, nobody would bid on it, he'd sold the gray bill, 10 cents. And uh, so I picked up a bit of a library there. And which I appreciated, and I appreciate the fact that he did recognize me, and he recognized my poverty level. While I was in college, I was married, and we had one child, and then two while I was in college. 
And then when I mm-hmm. began teaching, I began collecting this information. One of the books I bought in Gettysburg is now still, I still have it, but it is brown and it is falling apart, totally falling apart, just crumbling. Mm-hmm. And it was a book of Russian folk tales published in England. I took that and rewrote and added uh, Russian culture to it. And then I sent it to Brown University to a Russian professor. And the Russian professor, Sergei, and his wife, Valentina, were from mm-hmm. over from Russia, and they read it. They said, you have two or three small mistakes here. Other than that, it's fine. So we corrected those mistakes, and then we published it. And that was the book of Russian folktales that you have seen, I believe, and it was called Frost. And uh, I am pleased with it. I'm I'm sorry? Yes, Frost is available on Brown Posey Press, and uh, that that was just fascinating. It's like, here we go from Gettysburg to Russia, and you (laughs) also list yourself as as someone who has traveled quite a bit. And um, I was just wondering, in terms of some of those books, like the Book of the Russian Folktales, there's the kind of things that – obviously influenced you. Were there any specific books or authors that inspired you? Well, it depends. If you talk about style, I think I read some British authors like Aldous Huxley and George Mm -hmm. Orwell in particular. I read D.H. Lawrence, and I read a few other British authors, but I found Orwell and and, uh, Huxley, uh, both I thought had a certain humor about them, that was what I mm-hmm. call sarcasm, and uh, particularly in Animal Farm, you found that quite a bit. And that's yes. why this particular book I, is loaded with that type of thing, because it also takes the right subject. If I were writing about mm-hmm. Russian folktales, there's very little sarcasm ever gets into that, or even with the writing about the uh, the bootlegger and... and uh, up in uh, the uh, Clinton and Lycoming County areas. He was a fascinating person, but he doesn't lend itself to sarcasm on my part. Mm -hmm. And there is the other thing, too, is you had, and you moved about to different areas, like your book of poetry, Whimsy and Rye. Uh, My question, I guess, with regards to it, is poetry or prose more comfortable for you? What, What do you enjoy best? It depends on what I'm writing. I definitely enjoy writing poetry. I like just working with it and getting the the meter and getting the the measure of it and getting it to rhyme. I like rhyming poetry very much. And I've uh, uh-huh. had people say, well, you, some of those sound like Ogden Nash. And I find that complimentary because I like yes. Ogden Nash's poetry. And uh, so... I've had several poems that I really enjoyed, and I've got several of them published over in England uh, in magazines over there. I've written a poem on the mm-hmm. honeybee, and uh, that was published in England and published over here. Over in England, they explained one or two of my terms that were as American terms, but uh, mm-hmm. the I've also put in there commentary. I wrote I wrote a, a paper or a, a, a paper that's in the book on a potlatch, the international potlatch. Mm-hmm. I don't know if any of your listeners are aware, many of them I'm sure are, 
a potlatch was a ritual out in the northwestern uh, area where the Indians lived. There's a ritual in, among mm-hmm. one of the tribes out there, a couple of them, and they would give away goods. They'd like have a party and give away goods to other people. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if the international community held a potlatch and Chile could give away just a tiny bit of land in the northern part and Bolivia would have a seashore and an outpost, to the, an outlet to the sea. Or if England gave things out of their museum that they had taken from Persia and Egypt and uh, that area and uh, other places and give those back to the countries where they got them in the first place. And, of course, in that mm. case, I used the idea that, that the British then don't have a museum anymore because they gave everything away back to their original owners. And I mentioned mm-hmm. the Russians who took all the equipment out of the massive industry out of Poland, just stole it from them, and a day now at the potlatch will give back a whole trainload of rusty equipment. And that well, they did the same, the thing, did the same thing in Germany. Put, Yes, that's true. They did the same thing where they, they the units would go in and just dismantle entire factories and take them back. And that was a fascinating operation in itself. But what you're proposing is something other too. That uh, and that's the kind of imagination I like to see and I like to read about. Well, in closing, a um, couple of questions for you, Guy. First, um, what is next for you? What are you going to be working on? I am right now finishing the index for my book on Italian music, which is uh, we've sent it over to England, and it's going to be published over there. And uh, I'm pleased to be able to do that. The only uh, regular writing that I have planned, and I've got a file that's ready to go on it, and I've been making several visits. I'd like to do something on the coal mining in the anthracite region, and it's inspired by those mountains of coal that you see over there today. Huge, huge mm. mountains of coal in different towns like Treverton and uh, Shemokin, those in particular, but Centralia and the other ones. They have coal banks there, which are called a calm, C-U-L-M, a calm bank. And yes. that has made me draw together, and I've got a lot of several in- interesting things that are not in other books and things that I can bring there, and I'm getting pictures from those that I'm taking myself. So I, I'd like to do that, and if I uh, can put it together, it'd take probably close to a year to get everything done, but put it in a ballad form and put it in a book form and tell quite a bit about the, po- the coal mining and the tragedies. And I have particular an individual who took the uh, – who came from the coal regions down to – Snyder County, Pennsylvania, in the center, closer to the center of the state, and mm-hmm. he lost a grandfather and an uncle and a father in the coal mines, the mm. father being a suicide because he was injured so badly, and they told him he had to go back in the mines. But that's, mm. that is the gist of what I'm doing on a project right now that I'm enjoying gathering it, and I'm traveling to the area. There are only seven counties that had anthracite coal, and we're concentrating on that area to create what I want to do here. Our guest has been Guy Graybill, author of Intoxication Nation. You can find this book 
and these others on Brown Posey Press. Guy, thanks for your time today. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Tori. I really appreciated the chance to talk with you. You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of the Brown Posey books, A Moment in the Sun, Live from the Cafe, and the soon-to-be-released Searching for Roy Buchanan. This is the BookSpeak Network. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out Chumba Casino at ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com no purchase necessary VGW group void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus